You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 122 uh, wow. on our, our big run here. <laughs> episode <laughs> we keep having going on. So, um, Fran, what's new? I, I feel like we haven't sat down and done this in uh, a you, little while. You know what? We haven't. I don't know that there's anything new. We did get out our contest winner, uh Quentin, mm-hmm. uh, we did get out the flat of free plants today, which was 50 different native herbaceous two-inch plugs. Uh, so we got a really nice mix. We we're He was in our, our product range, so it was it was pretty easy to get 50. I, I shouldn't say it was easy. but It was I not got, easy. Yeah. No, because once you, you take out salt marsh and you start taking out emergence and then things that we don't have available or maybe things that don't look great, you know, it, it – it came down to the wire. I could have I could have gone a couple more yeah. before, you know, could have made it to like 53. But uh, other than that, I think we're good. We do have uh, – I know um, we have our live show coming yeah, up. Yeah, we have our live show. So uh, – and well, actually we have two – well, we have a live show and then we have a presentation we're doing. First, we'll talk on the presentation because nearly that's first. Yes, yeah, so that's September 22nd. At the Hopewell train station for the Sourlands Conservancy, so we'll we'll be doing our first live talk. We've done plenty of talks since it started, but because of COVID, we haven't been able to do them live. They've all been via Zoom, so that will be our first uh, live talk. So we're, if you're in the area and you can make that, please, we'd we'd love to see you and, and be able to say hello. Yeah, and then our live show is at uh, James Braddock Park, which is in was it North Bergen, New Jersey? Yeah, and that's on October first, and uh, there's at a plant sale from ten to two. To two. And the show starts at 2 o'clock, and I know it's I, a, we joked around and said, oh, there will be like five people there. But we've had five people at least tell us that they're going to be there. Yeah. So, so it's at the the Nature Nature Park Cafe, mm-hmm. and it is limited seating. It's free to attend, but you have to claim your ticket from the link. So you can go to the Native Plant Society of, um, of New Jersey, their website, or their Facebook page. We posted the link on both the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group and the Pinelands mm-hmm. Nursery. I think – I don't know if we've done it on Instagram. I've done it on my personal Instagram. So there's plenty of ways to get the link. If you don't have it, you can even mm-hmm. email us at info at nativeplantshealthyplanet.com, and we can get the link to you if you're, if you're in the area and you'd like to go. We're excited. It's the first time we've ever done a, a live show, and we have a great guest with Dr. Randy Eckel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, we're excited. Yeah. We want to feed off that energy. And the last thing I'll bring up is uh, we've brought it up a couple times now is our job posting. We're looking for an assistant propagator. This is kind of like the, the cutoff here. Um, for people who, who want to apply. We've had a couple people who listened and then applied, which um, is awesome to to see and hear. And uh, I'm yeah. glad you guys think enough of us that you might want to work with us. <laughs> so, but, uh, but, yeah, if, you, if you're if you interested in native plants and you have some propagation experience, it's a, it's an awesome position, um, not one that we expected to, to come up. It was no. a guy who was here for a long time, um, Probably over twenty years, oh, yeah. and he decided to take a little early retirement. So good for it was good for Raul, but uh, a good opportunity for someone else who wants to get into the, this industry or uh, or start working more with native plants. 
I agree. I agree. Yeah, so, but we also have an amazing guest today, and uh, one that we're excited about because we didn't know this was happening. Yeah, so. we're excited and honored because we found out she she listened to us and went, "Oh, you should, you need to come on." So. Well, listened and and was willing to come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Terry, I'm going to let you introduce yourself because I could list off all of your accomplishments, but I'm sure I would miss something. So why don't you tell everyone who you are and uh, and how you got into the restoration field? Sure. Hi, this is uh, Terry Doss. I am the co-director of the Meadowlands Research and Restoration Institute, which is the scientific arm of the New Jersey Sports and Exposition Authority. Um, we are a state agency and operate under the Department of State, and a lot of people don't realize that we are a state agency, so I just like to always throw that out there. Um, and I've been in the field for like 35 years now, and um, happy to be here today. Thanks for having me. No problem. So just for our listeners to, to start, and uh, I know you mentioned uh, it's an arm of the New Jersey Sports and Exposition Association. Could you explain what that is um, and what it encompasses? Yeah, it's 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 a weird name, <laughs> and, we've but, had and that's a, little... a that's a name change, right? That's more recent. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, the NJSCA is, is has a wide diversity of duties, but we're most widely known uh, due to our connection to the MetLife Sports Complex. We hold the lease and provide for the ongoing operation of MetLife. And in case you haven't heard, that we are. Um, going to be one of the hosts for the 2026 World Cup soccer mm-hmm. events, and everyone's really excited about that. Um, but so the authority was first created back in 1971. It was actually a mandate that was put out in 1969. And so in 71, it started as the Hackensack Meadowlands Development Commission. And it had a couple of different mandates under under its purview, which included the uh, to provide for the order, orderly development of the Meadowlands District and provide facilities for the sanitary disposal of solid waste. Uh, but over time, the focus has changed, and that was evident due to the name change in 2001 when it became uh, the Heck New Jersey Meadowlands Commission. So the word development was, development was dropped, and with that became more of a focus on managing the land in the district. And then the authority became the regional planning and zoning agency for the 30 square miles of the district, which includes parts of 14 towns in Bergen and Hudson counties in 2015 when it merged with the commission and took over the NJSCA name. And when that happened, NJSCA took on another role that had been at the heart of the Meadowlands Commission, which was that of protecting the delicate balance of nature. And that's where my department comes in. And, you know, over time, our, our roles keep changing and uh, evolving. And, for example, at the end of last year, we closed the very last landfill here in the Meadowlands. So that was exciting. That, and that's been a long, long trip. And now we're looking at how we can reuse those lands for the good of the public and the wildlife. And, and given our unique location with thousands of acres of sensitive habitat surrounded by urban land and with millions of people that live, work, and travel through here every day. Our ultimate goal, I think, is to to show how economic growth and environmental protection can go hand in hand. Awesome. And now I'm I'm a little bit embarrassed because I was on another podcast the other day. I I was a guest on the Native Habitat podcast, 
and they asked me to talk about the different like unique ecosystems in New Jersey. And I spent a lot of time talking about the Pine Barrens and like the the Highlands and. I forgot about the Meadowlands. <laughs> I'm just realizing, oh, my God. And and if you've ever driven up or down the New Jersey Turnpike, you know, before you hit New York or just after you come out of New York and you see MetLife Stadium uh, and and you see all the all the grasses, that's that's the Meadowlands that you're, you're driving yeah. through. So I, I had a bunch of questions. I think you answered them, though, as you were going. So the, the actual size of the Meadowlands, did you say 30 acres? Yeah. Wait, 30 how many? Miles. 30 square miles. Yeah, it was originally 20,000 acres of wetlands. Wow. And due to reclamation, development, infrastructure, the the transportation infrastructure that goes through and the the different pipelines, uh, we've lost 12,000 acres of wetlands. But we still have 8,000 acres of wetlands, waterways, open space right right here in the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area. Awesome. And, and we're often forgotten. I, I call it <laughs> yeah. the forgotten New Jersey coastline. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons it's it's so forgotten is most people who've been to the Meadowlands really are just driving on the New Jersey Turnpike. They're driving through. You notice the industry, but you don't necessarily notice the the habitat that's there. And um, having collected seed in the, the Meadowlands, it's uh, it's amazing how you can be so surrounded by, like, a city, basically. You're looking at New York City in some instances, and you feel like you <laughs> there's, like, no one else within, like, 100 yards of where you are. Like, how else is anyone going to get to where you are just standing there? Uh, so it's kind of like a juxtaposition because it's very urban in a way, but very wild at the same time. Yeah, and I bet, I bet when you drive through, you don't even notice the osprey flying over your head or the eagle's nest that is just off the New Jersey Turnpike. We They had uh, two chicks this year. Um, and the, the, the white pelican that you sometimes can see off the Turnpike. But, you know, people are just flying by, and, and luckily they're paying attention to the road, which is what they should be doing. <laughs> well, given all the industry around it, what kind of pressure does that put on the Meadowlands to, to – preserve or restore what's there um is is there a lot of you know industry wanting to encroach on that or is it hard because of what surrounds it yeah yeah i mean there's a lot of challenges um with the contamination ongoing you know historical contamination ongoing pollution and development pressures you know all of new jersey is experiencing the warehousing effect and and that's the same case here in the meadowlands um, but I, th- I think the biggest challenge is exactly what we're talking about, is, is getting people to, to notice what's here and become a part of it. Uh, we, we have accessibility. People can come here at any time to our parks. We have a lot of trails. We have hidden areas that, that, that people don't even realize are here. Um, and there's often a lot of negative connotations about the Meadowlands. Um, you know, the, there's always a joke that about Jimmy Hoffa or, or something. <laughs> I'm sure so, we were going to make that joke later on. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, I, and so I think the biggest challenge is, is getting people to, to just understand how awesome this place is and inspiring them and, and coming together to, to show what a great place it is. And, and if we all come together and start really appreciating the awesomeness of it, um, then I think those other challenges melt away because 
once you love something, once you get out into it, you learn to love it. And once you love it, you, you save it. And so I think our biggest challenge is, is getting the millions of people that are here to appreciate its awesomeness. I think it would be a, a good idea just for some of our listeners that aren't from the area just to give a little bit of the historical background on the Meadowlands if we could. Like I didn't even know myself until – you know one of the things I appreciate, appreciate uh, about Pinelands Nursery is that at one point uh, Don and Suzanne Knezik took all the employees on a Hackensack Riverkeeper tour, boat tour of the, the Meadowlands and just – gotten a history like i had no idea that that was originally freshwater and atlantic white cedar um so you know that was a real eye-opener for me i I didn't know any of the history i don't know how much you know about it but i if we could like roll the clock back and kind of take us from what we know to present day a little bit just what's happened sure and and just before i do that i'll let let you and, and anyone else interested know that we have free boat tours. So, you know, if you go on our website and, and sign up, we have free boat tours that, that show you the, you know, how cool it is out here. And, and I've had people that I've met, like, out walking my dog that have gone on one of those, and they're like, wow, I felt like I was transformed somewhere else. And, you- and people pay a lot of money to go to leave this area to go experience that elsewhere, and they don't realize it's here and it's free. Um, but, yeah, so the history. It, it, it's a it's a really different one than most places because it's it's relatively young compared to other ecosystems. It was first really formed by the Wisconsin Glacier about twenty thousand years ago, and when it began to melt and retreat, it formed this deep freshwater lake, and that was the glacial lake Hackensack. And then about ten thousand years ago, the lake breached, and that was right around the glacier's end around Perth Amboy. And it began to drain, and that's what really created the Hackensack River as, as we know it. But even back then, it was still a freshwater system. It was connected to the Atlantic Ocean and had the daily tides, but from Newark up, it was primarily freshwater. Um, and it was forested, uh, it had a number of meandering freshwater streams associated with it. Uh, there were Native Americans that lived here, and they were largely nomadic and didn't really leave a footprint on the area. Um, But then, you know, moving forward quickly about a 1,000 years ago, the um, sea levels began to rise a little bit more with the last of the the glacier melt, and the mixed hardwoods became inundated, and it really turned into an Atlantic white cedar swamp. Um, And that existed till, till about 150, 200 years ago. Um, so if you fast forward again the, to about the 16th, 17th century, that's when you start getting the European settlers here. Um, and they, they started to farm the area and start to leave that footprint. Uh, they started to reclaim land through diking and ditching. And there were, there were transportation networks across the land even as early as the, the mid-1800s. There's some... Uh, cool maps of the area that that show the the plank roads that go cross through and some early rail lines. So even in the late 1800s, you start to see the Meadowlands getting bisected by the different infrastructure. Um, and since the beginning of colonialism, the history of the Meadowlands has really been one at various attempts at reclamation. And there's a lot of old documents, including like old New Jersey geologic reports, that discuss discuss the efforts to quote, 
frustrate the tides and the ubiquitous muskrat. And they were the efforts were really aimed at controlling nature and, and solving what they called the problem of the meadowlands, the unstable and unproductive soils, the underutilized land, pestilence, and, and all this was within the burgeoning populations of New York. And there was a lot of movement of goods and people from New York City out to the, the farmlands. Um, and then you get to the 20th century, and that's when you start to see a lot more infrastructure that just starts to surround the, the meadowlands and create different patches of meadowlands. And when you started to see the unregulated dumping of solid waste and, um, Oh, and if you look at some old articles from like the 1930s and 1950s about the Meadowlands, there's these grand ideas to create these super cities, these megalopolises right in the middle of the Meadowlands. Um, but there were still those problems with those unproductive, you know, mucky soils. Um, so luckily those mucky soils kept some of those grand ideas out. So the commission was really created in, in 1969 and went in and, and, then when that happened, they began to regulate the open landfills that had been operating without any kind of oversight for years. But I, I kind of jumped forward. Um, when the lands were being reclaimed, there was a lot of diking done. And, and, you know, those pesky muskrats kept messing up the dikes and letting the water back in. So they started to create even harder uh, berms along the river. So what happened then is they did effectively dry out the lands and were able to farm the lands, but the, the farming was never very productive. And so they kind of just let it be. And in 1950, uh, a nor'easter came and just knocked over those berms. And so all that farmland had been uh, dried out, had sunk. And when the tides were able to come back in, a lot of that just was converted to open water. And so we have aerial photographs that show um, intact wetlands in like the 1930s. And by the 1980s, they're just patches of, of marsh. And along with those changes, all the freshwater was starting to be truncated. And you had the building of the Oradell Dam. And so that, that brackish water started to make its way up from the Newark Bay. And you had this whole new system um, with not a lot of native seed source available. And that's why you see so much Phragmites up here. It was the, the first to really gain a, a foothold in these newly formed ecosystems. You know, because you had open land and all of a sudden Phragmites, which is an invasive uh, species, can take multiple conditions. And those conditions were ideal and they could run rampant. And what most people who who don't know plant material, I, I can't tell you how many people have said, "Oh, I was driving through the meadowlands. What's that beautiful, you know, grass? I want to put that in my yard." <laughs> but it's if they only knew the amount of time and money and effort that has gone into removing that. Um, yeah, and I I didn't realize that 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 those conditions really popped up. As recently as the 1950s, I, I knew there was that transition. I didn't know it was, well, I guess, not within my life. I assumed it was much. Lifetime. I assumed it was yeah. much, much longer. Ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's amazing how recent it was, and and you turn that clock back a little bit and just take a little bit of precautions. It it, it looked very different. Um, one of our our lost. Uh, wetland areas is a sawmill creek wildlife management area and it is um 
that's about 800 acres. And as recently as 1980, it was very much intact. And we've just been seeing it erode very quickly. And, and we're, we've got a, an EPA grant right now to study the system and uh, look at potential restoration options for it, as well as um, we, we looked at what was happening in terms of carbon sequestration and um, carbon sources and where we have vegetated areas in the sawmill it's sequestering carbon to this day, but where we have mud flat, it's a source of carbon. So with this study, we're looking at if we were to restore it, what might that mean in terms of carbon sequestration? And that's a, an, another question that maybe we'll get into a little later. I don't want to throw us too far ahead, but we talk about the idea of restoration. And typically we think we're taking an environment and then that has been uh, desecrated in some way, and we're touring it to what it used to be. Right. And in the Meadowlands, that's not necessarily the case because you have a, a completely new condition, and it would be, I don't know if it's possible to, to recreate what we had there. Um, right. So we, we follow uh, the definition of ecological restoration put out by the Society for Ecological Restoration. So we look to assist in the recovery and we look to put back the, the, the functions and services that were provided. But the other thing that we're looking at is, you know, often they say you build it and they will come. Mm-hmm. Well, they are already here. We have people here. We have wildlife here. But what we don't have for the people we don't have access for the wildlife, we don't necessarily have the habitats. We have thousands of diamondback terrapin here. Yeah. Um, we're not sure where they breed. So we, we have, we have a, this uh, mark and recapture program that we started back in 2009. And last year it was pretty cool. We actually recaptured some of those that we had tagged, I think, back to 2012. So these diamondback terrapin are living here for, for over 10 years. So they're, they're healthy. They're reproducing. We don't know where they're breeding. So we're researchers, researchers to put some – uh, tags on them so we can actually follow them to, to see where they're, they're breeding. Mm-hmm. And um, we had to move a, a terrapin nest this year because it was, is that a, um, a super fund uh, remediation site and the site that they were remediating the, the workers there saw the terrapin come in and lay their eggs, but they were great. They did the right thing. They put a little fence around it. We worked with others in the state to successfully relocate those eggs to a better place. So there's still a lot we don't know, but what we do know is that um, we've got the the birds, the wildlife, the terrapin, the fish here. So what we're trying to do is put the habitat that they need back. Mm -hmm. But it's not not put it back to what it was, but put it back to what they need. Something that will serve that ecological function because you can't, you couldn't, it can't be a freshwater marsh again. Yeah. It, right. you're going to, you have salt water now. So and, no, and, and now you have wildlife that, that depend on that area based on what it is, um, uh, native wildlife. So that's, you know, I guess that makes sense as far as yeah. what, what path you take. I do want to talk about notable restorations and how the Meadowlands has changed. But before I jump ahead to that, just was there a turning point for the commission that made it real, like that made it realize the importance of the Meadowlands from 
moving away from development and moving towards preservation, was there like a notable thing that happened to make that change or was that just something that gradually happened over time? I think it was more gradual. Um, it kind of follows how wetland science and ecological restoration has been moving and growing. You know, it, the, the science of all of this is, is still compared to other sciences still so relatively new and so as that has been evolving, so has the commission and the authorities' um, viewpoint of, of what this looks like. And, 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 and hence, you know, the, the changing name and nature of, of what we do. I think it was a, a big eye-opener for our, our commissioners. Um, there was a, a segment on real sports on HBO on the uh, World Series of Birding that occurs here in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And part of that segment was shot here at Harrier Meadows in the Meadowlands. And they were just so excited that here was people from the outside coming in and showing that this is a, the habitat to come. If, you, if you're doing a World Series of Birding, you need to be here in the Meadowlands. <laughs> if, if you were put on the spot to make that, to convince someone, you know, why – why the preservation of the Meadowlands is important. Why Why do you feel the Meadowlands has so much importance to not just New Jersey, but to to our nation? Well, I, you know, one, I think it is one of New Jersey's rare gems along with the Pinelands and the Highlands. So now Tom will forever remember that. <laughs> 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 but I think the, the importance of it is really the, the hope that it brings to the millions of people that live around here. We've, we've thrown a lot at, at this system over the last 100, 200 years. But the amazing thing is that it, it has this natural recovery of its own. It, it, the, the birds have come back. The wildlife have come back. The water quality has improved. Um, and th- there's millions of people here that can can learn from that and show that there is hope. Even after things can get so bad, there's hope here. And I, I really think that's one of the most important things, not just for New Jersey, but but overall for the world. And, and we're actually working with Judy Weiss right now, who is trying to make this a hope spot, an international hope spot, not just the Meadowlands, but the whole Harbor Estuary region. Um, and... And I'm, I'm hoping that we'll get to that point. Now, I know over the years, just from what I'm familiar with, there's been uh, a, a fair amount of salt marsh restoration that's occurred, removing phragmites and, and restoring marsh grasses like smooth cord grass or uh, salt, uh, salt hay. Um, would we be able to talk about some of the more notable efforts that have occurred or, or some of the more successful efforts uh, over time that, that have reduced phragmites and, and – put in really well-functioning marsh systems? Yes, and, and you know, it's it's been, I think that the first project was taken up back in the 1980s. So we've had a lot of time to look at those systems, uh, thousands of acres that have been restored. And it hasn't been just removing the invasives, but also to removing some of the fill and bringing in um, – 
soils that are more appropriate for the wildlife that we see see here now. Um, we, I would say, Secaucus High School is is was built in 2012. I think is when it was finalized, and that brought in some sand and um, had some high marsh and low marsh. And that site has really settled nicely. There's there's no maintenance that's going on there now, but a lot of study to look at um, who's using the site and how things have changed since it was first replanted with native species. Um, the mitigation bank um, that was built back in 1997, 98, uh, we've been spending a lot of time there this summer because um, it's one of the, it's like a 200 acre site and it's really been successful a lot of secretive marsh birds that are there in amongst the the native species the diversity of native species so it's 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 based in spartina alternaflor but there's a nice mix there um but what's happened over the last couple years and really was um startling this year was how much cattail is there now Mm. it's a it's a brackish system um but for some reason, this in the last five years, there's been a lot more cattail, and I, I've heard your discussions about cattail. <laughs> I'm not concerned by it. I think it's great, and we still hear the clapper rails out there and the Virginia rails. Um, so, it's what we've seen is that these restoration projects that were undertaken everywhere from from 30 to, to 10 years ago have really um, been successful. You know, for me, cattails, I know it has a bad rap, but it is native, and it's very versatile, uh, especially with the amount of permanent inundation it can take and salt tolerance. And to me, it fills a need that not too many native plants fill. Um, So if you see a large quantity, I would rather see that than Phragmites. I I, I think it has more ecological value than Phragmites. It's not changing the, the soil composition or the elevation or anything like that, so... And I think our friend Don Smith will tell you all the oh he loves the, cattails, cattail yeah. and muskrats. So, so. And I, friend, you brought I, I was friend, you brought something up there that I think we should touch on too, and that's uh, Terry. You'd mentioned the that Phragmites moved in right away. Was there any any discussion on hey why are we worried about all this invasive plant Phragmites? It's it is serving some kind of purpose. There's erosion control where there was no no plant material. It, it established quickly. Yeah. And, and I'll rephrase my question and say, why was the decision made to say, hey, why don't we create a, a ecosystem out of native plant material versus leaving the Phragmites that colonize there? Right. Um, and, you know, some of the projects have been called frag eradication projects up here. And um, I, I take exception with that because they were fill removal projects. And um, we've been able to show that once native plants are there, rather than Phragmites, that the diversity that within the habitat it just changes. And, and, you know, we can have the discussion about biodiversity until um, the, the cows come home, but the, the bottom line is without biodiversity, we'll lose life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not even going to go that way, but we – one of the things that we've undertaken the last couple of years, actually started last year, was the uh, Meadowlands Breeding Bird Atlas. It's the first ever. And so it was exciting to take part of that. And 
we were able to accurately document where the breeding habitats are and what sort of diversity is occurring there. And in the, the, the few areas where there is still very large stands of Phragmites, they're pretty silent. And um, not being used for breeding habitat except for um, red-winged blackbird. Yeah, I I think I I had researched how many. I, I think I had researched how many Lepidoptera, uh, Phragmites hosts. I think it was three, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, and it wasn't anything real common, uh, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. So it wasn't like I didn't see or could find any real life cycle use for for Phragmites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and one of our sites, um, Riverbend is this beautiful marsh. It's, it's um, a real good example of, of a marsh where because it is has a little bit higher salinity, you don't see so much Phragmites there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has been our um, most important salt marsh sparrow habitat site. Uh, but the, the concern that we have is opposite of most of New Jersey where they're losing salt marsh sparrow habitat to... Uh, sea level rise, we're actually losing it to Phragmites. And we're not sure why, and that's going to be a big focus of ours next next spring. Um, We we did hear a couple individuals out there during breeding season, so we still have hopes that that the site is being used successfully. But this fall, we're going to look at what we can do you know, we don't want to just treat the symptoms. Uh, we want to get to the root cause of why why this is happening, um, and we don't want to be reactionary, but we want to do it very thoughtfully and slowly because we don't want to. We're trying to assist in the recovery. Not we're not trying to manage habitat. We're trying to just assist in in the natural recovery. How does because we're we're talking about a lot of work. How does restoration occur that like or the funding or the the people do you need restoration partners in order to make this possible we need a lot (laughs) (laughs) you know we're focusing right now on just the the tidal marshes but we do have freshwater marshes we have um we we don't have a lot of trees but we do still have some forested systems and and that's some of our biggest concerns um talk about invasives uh, the mile a minute is worse than than anything that we've seen lately. Wow. Um, so, especially in our, our forested and scrub shrub systems. So, we we have a lot of different habitats that we're we're dealing with. We have a long long wish list, and yes, we need a lot of partners. Um, some of our one of our best partners is the Bergen County Audubon Society. They mm-hmm. they have a great group of volunteers. There, there are a lot of our eyes and ears that are out there. Um, the Hackensack Riverkeeper is one of our partners, the, the New York, New Jersey Baykeeper. But um, we just had, we just hosted the, the uh, CWRP, the Corporate Wetland oh, Restoration yeah. Partnership with uh, Russ and those guys. So we are looking forward to put a couple uh, grant applications into with them. Um, we do work very closely with the US EPA. They have a wetland uh, program, wetland development program, uh, <laughs> wetland development program grant. They have grants for wetland. <laughs> <development>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I, um, and so they're a great partner. So we have a, a couple great partners, um, but we're we're always looking for more. And and whether you're you're interested in forests or, or grasslands, we haven't even talked about grasslands yet, and or tidal marshes. We've, we've got all those habitats here, and they they all need help. <laughs> you know, and that's one of the things that that people don't always think about are grasslands. You know, when we uh, talk to Dr. Dwayne Estes from the Southeastern Grassland Initiative. You know, there's not enough focus on grasslands sometimes, but we're rich in grasslands in in the Meadowlands. Yep, we have um, all those old landfills. There are yeah. coastal. That's our coastal habitat. We don't have a lot of coastal have upland habitat, but our our landfills do provide that. And so we see uh, grasshopper sparrow and savanna sparrow that are are breeding in those grasslands. So, um, you know, that's something that you see by Jamaica Bay and, and other, mm-hmm. other of these urban systems. And so that's um, one of our focus issues right now. Whenever we have a guest that, that has some kind of relationship with water or marshes, it, it kind of we always get on the path of plastic contaminants. Is that an issue in the, in the Meadowlands or something that's, you know, I, I think there was a study where they were able to do core samples and they could see most of like the capture contaminants has gotten – it's at its worst the last 50 years. I don't know if that's something that's impacting wildlife or impacting what you do with the Meadowlands. We're, we're researching that. We're working um, with the New Jersey City University who has been taking samples over the last couple of years. Um, one, of, one of the things that we're doing is um, we have a lot of bird studies going on. And um, some band, bird banding studies where we can study the migratory songbirds, and we we take uh, different characteristics of those songbirds when we band them, including their weight. So we can see that they're putting on weight here in the Meadowlands, and that they so they are getting some sort of nutrition here. Um, we haven't been doing any blood tests, but I know New Jersey Audubon has done some some tests uh so I, I don't have a great answer to that question but it's something that we're we're looking at what are what are some of the research projects that are being done i know you just mentioned that is there anything notable that you can share um last year with the help of uh, bergen county audubon we put up a modus tower um okay. and so the modus is uh tracks the radio telemetry signals provided by the, the nanotags and so through our banding, we're able to, and working with uh, folks from Kane University, we're able to band these um, songbirds and put nanotags and then follow their migratory routes. So last year was the first time we ever did it. We, we focused on great catbirds, and we followed their travels down the um, eastern coastline down to South Carolina and Georgia. So that's really cool. And that's awesome. Yeah. And were you going to say something, Tom? No, I feel like I'm cutting you off. Um, so in your time, how do you feel the Meadowlands has changed for the better? Well, you know, we, we have our water quality and air quality studies, and they show market improvement over the last 30 years. Um, but to me, what's really been – showing that the changes are the wildlife 
And, you know, that, that mark and recapture program with the Terrapins and our, our banding program with the songbirds, uh, with the songbirds, we recaptured um, or yeah, we recaptured birds that had been tagged 12 years ago. And when they noted this in the database, questions came back right away. They're like, wait, those birds don't live that long. And are you sure about this? And yes, we were sure. So we're seeing that the species here are, are breeding, living, um, thriving. And, and so that to me is, is really exciting. Um, we have a fish study that's been uh, occurring over three times over the last 30 years. And um, the first one was around 1983-85. And then the next one was around 2003. And the change in the diversity and number of, of fish that were found was incredible. And, and if you think about it, that's around when most of the wetland restoration projects first took hold. And um, there was mostly the system was full of mummy chugs. And by 2003, the diversity was just incredible. So um, things like that. We're, you know, when I talk about hope, that's what I'm talking about. But I'll tell you what, this year, um, you know, I mentioned that we had some eagles successfully breed up here in the last two years. And um, so this year, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, New Jersey Fish and Wildlife Service came up to ban the two eaglets when they were about six weeks old. And with the help of PSCNG, they had to bring up the big um, buckets to, to help scoop out the eaglets. And so I was able to help the, the folks from uh, New Jersey Fish and Wildlife Service tag these eaglets. And at the end, I was able to hold it. Oh, wow. And, like, forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That is, yeah. that is amazing. That's something I would, I would love to, to do. But and who, who would have thought that 30 years ago? Or, you know, when I was a kid, I, I'm from outside of Philadelphia and would come up the, the turnpike to go up to New England and never stop here. And, you know, that's when you had the, the landfills with, uh, you know, just gulls flying all around and, and it fires. And who would have thought that one hold an eaglet? That's, that's, it, that's it for me. <laughs> it's amazing because I was just having a conversation with my wife probably a week ago that I've seen more eagles this year in New Jersey than I've seen my entire life living in the, the Pennsylvania, New Jersey area um, e- easily. Like, and, and most of those sightings have just been in the last like four or five years. But I, I mentioned that to John Park of New Jersey Audubon. He goes, oh, man. He goes, there's eagles all over now. It's not even like <laughs> – it's starting to become just commonplace. It's, yeah, it's, I think uh, one of your articles for our Buzz episodes within the last – well, since we started them, <laughs> within yeah. the last two years, yeah. um, was uh, – wasn't it that there was eagles in all 21 New Jersey counties? Yeah. No? Yeah. There, 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 there was bre- at least one eagles. breeding pair in each county in, in New Jersey, which is amazing. But it, it just that's amazing. But some of the places that they are, are finding to breed is even more amazing, uh, not just that the fact that they're there, that the places that they're finding – I, I don't know. It, it's it's remarkable to me for something that as a kid, you know, we were taught that they're just about extinct to to have a pretty good chance of seeing them like once a month. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and what about the osprey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We didn't see them in the Meadowlands for maybe 100 years. Wow. 
and they started coming back, I believe, around 2016. And now every year we have nine to 14 nesting pairs. Wow. In fact, it, they're, they're fighting for, for apartment space. <laughs> <laughs> you- it was funny because we're putting up nesting platforms to try to, to, to help them with it. And every time we try, you know, they show us that they'd rather be elsewhere. So we're trying to figure out where they want to be. It's different in the Meadowlands than, say, the Barnegat Bay because we have so many tall buildings, so many high other towers. Um, they are very, the Osprey are very specific about where they want to be. Um, and so it's, it's so limited. Um, so in 2021, the first eagle pair came in. There were, there were two pairs of eagles. One was on a tree, but the, this other pair came in and took over an Osprey platform. So the Osprey moved over to this PC and Jeep uh, pole and um, it, it was near a live wire. So PSCNG came in and put in a nesting platform for them. So the Osprey success, successfully bred there and the Eagles successfully bred in the other spot. And then come 2022, the Eagles go and take over that, that other <laughs> platform. The Osprey moved back to that one. So it's just a constant, you know, tussle mm-hmm. for space. Do you, do you have a favorite discovery uh, for the Meadowlands? It may be something that you already mentioned. But is there something that just wowed you, like, I can't believe, like, this is happening here or, or that we found this year? Yeah, there, there was something, oh, my gosh. Uh, there was something the other day, and I, I'm going to have to push my memory because I remember thinking, wow, this is even cooler than the egrets. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. I was I, I was waiting for you to say it was the eaglets, but if there's something cooler, we, we'd love to know if, if it comes up. I'll have to, yeah, darn, it's that old mind. Um, I'll tell you, every time we go out to do the market and we capture for the terrapins, I'm just in in all of them. Every single one of them looks different from Mm -hmm. the next one. And they're just, they're just amazing to look at and amazing to even think that they're here in the Meadowlands. What does the future hold for the Meadowlands? What, um, what can we expect moving forward for this area? Oh, that, that's a tough question, and I'm not sure I can answer that. I, I will say here that, that we just came back from a, a big announcement. Um, the US EPA, New Jersey DEP, just announced that uh, the Lower Hackensack River is now a, a listed Superfund on the Superfund priorities list. Mm-hmm. So what that means, I'm not sure. Um It'll be interesting. Everything's always interesting in the Meadowlands, and so it'll be interesting. Um, I mentioned that we we work closely with EPA and DEP, so I'm hoping that that process. And they even said this at the at the um, announcement that they've learned a lot from the Passaic and, and other sites. So we're hoping that this process moves a lot more quickly. So that'll be um, seen. Um, I can give you my vision. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Um, so imagine you're, you're coming up the New Jersey turnpike and you see sand dunes on either side. (laughs) And then in behind those sand dunes, you see these coastal grasslands that are just have the songbirds flitting, flitting all throughout. Then you look out over the expanses of salt marsh grasses and, um, some 
sandy habitats and those sandy habitats for the, the diamondback tempt and the black skimmers. Um, you see the, the new greenway coming through the Kearney marshes that provides all the folks here that have limited access in their own towns, this new greenway that goes right through the Kearney marshes and over the Hackensack river with this trail that goes all the way to Jersey city. And that, that greenway is, you know, got a living shoreline on either side. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I would and, love to see that for connectivity yeah. purposes. I, I, I can't even express how valuable that would be. Well, and imagine being able to go up on one of the closed landfills and you have this Hawk Watch, the Meadowlands Hawk Watch, and views of New York City as well as all the surrounding towns and marshes with, with trails. Um, just this much greener system along the edges of the wetlands and the waterways and, and everything more better connected. Absolutely. What are the biggest ob- obstacles do you feel are keeping us from, from doing that? One, one is, um, you know, we need to, to continue to educate folks. Well, one, we need to get people out here into the Meadowlands because once you come out here, you begin to learn and you begin to love. Um, and we need to inspire people and, and, and help them understand why it's important um, to restore the, the Meadowlands. You know, it has such a negative connotation too often. So how can we inspire? Um, and I think once that happens, you know, there's, there's unity in numbers. And, and once we unite, I think, I think it's possible. This, it's, it's an urban area. Um, it's always going to be an urban area, but there's, with all these people around, I, I think we can do it. It's, it's just education and, and more education. So I want to, since we have you, before I change the subject, Tom, did you have anything? No, go ahead. Okay. Because Tom and I are both big fans of you and your work. You know, we wanted to talk a little bit about not just your job at the NJSEA, but some of, like your career path. And I know you mentioned to me that you were just listening to the rooted discussion with women in ecology. I thought maybe we could just talk about why you chose the field to go to go into and kind of how your journey has gone and maybe what's changed along the way. Okay. Um, well, I, I grew up on a little dead end street called campus drive and that was named after the temple university Ambler campus. Mm-hmm. So if you know that area, there's a lot of open space around there. My backyard was a forested wetland with a little Creek that, that, uh, went through it. Um, across the street, the behind the house across the street, there was a farm and at the end of my street was this huge meadow that led to, to Temple Ambler. Um, so I spent all my, my time out there. And, um, you know, on, on Sundays when I was supposed to be in church, I'd take my dog and go sneak out into the fields. So to me, the outdoors was always my, my church. And so I, I never really knew what I wanted to be. And um, when I chose my college, I... I I chose Delaware because they had the best women's lacrosse program. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I never really knew. And I started in education, but then the bureaucracy of education was just too much. I, I, after the, the first year, I was like, no, I, I don't think this is for me. Um, and I fell in love with economics. And um, 
found out that Delaware had a natural resource economics program. So I switched over to the department of ag and, um, Still didn't really know where that was going to lead, but I, I did an internship with the Cooperative Extension Service, and that kind of combined the education with the outdoors. And um, so when I graduated, I went to the local ag department and um, and uh, applied, and they said, well, you're a woman. Wow. <laughs> wow. We can't hire you. Wow. And, you know, it was the early 1980s. I I understood uh, what farmer was going to talk to me. Mm-hmm. So kind of bummed around for three years, waited tables, attended bar, moved to Key West, lived in a tent. <laughs> <laughs> after a time, I, I went back to the career counselor at, at Delaware and said, you know, where am I going? Can you help? And, you know, talked about my love of economics and of the outdoors and, and of, of, you know, living close to the water. And they recommended the Marine Studies Program there, the Marine Policy Program. And it was a great fit. And that's where I started to become interested in wetlands, but from the economic side, sort of the valuation, the, the real valuation, if, if we really cost it out, uh, what our wetlands are worth to us and what they're worth um, when they're damaged. Um, so that, that was cool. But my master's thesis was a regression analysis of coastal land use prices and how they were affected by the Critical Area Act in the Anne Arundel County, Maryland. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, very, very twisty, turny path. Um, and I, you know, I asked my professor, what am I now? What am I applying for? And they said, you're a policy analyst. But there were no real ads in the paper for that. Um, but I found out about this conference at the World Trade Center and um, went to it. And it was all the heads of these coastal ocean programs from around the world. So I just walked around and said, I need a job. I need a job. And I ended up with NOAA down in D.C. I worked for the National Ocean Service. And that was pretty cool. That was during the first Bush administration. So there's a lot going on with wetlands then changes in the, the wetland regulations. So it was a pretty cool time. Um, but then I um, moved up to New York City uh, to get married and started looking for a job, and, and that was tough. Um, again, there was no one looking for a policy analyst in New York City, and they actually told me to take my master's degree off my resume because I was overqualified for everything. Real? Wow. <laughs> that amazes but, me. Yes, but my fiancé was a musician. He was in the studio one day, and he heard this guy talk about his mom's environmental consulting firm. And he begged for to get have me get an audience with his mom, and she ended up hiring me. They actually had just gotten a, a project that required economic analysis. Hmm. So I did that, and, and while I was there, it was a transportation-based firm, and they did a lot. They always hired wetland consultants to help with the project. So I saved up my money and took a bunch of continuing ed courses at Rutgers and environmental concern and, and said, Hey, I can do that now. So Mm -hmm. that, that started that out. Um, And, and then um, after about seven years there, I got a call from a, a large firm who asked me to join their firm and they had a large science program. So that was at a, good time for me that I, I was able to to move into a place where a lot of people that I could learn from 
And, and I, I learned so much. And I stayed there for 11 years and got to work a lot in the Meadowlands and was actually an on-call consultant for the commission for a while. So that was great. But I wanted to move to a smaller firm um, and one that really shared the mission of ecological restoration. So I was able to do that, uh, you know, uh, happened to be at the right place at the right time uh, with all of these positions. It, you know, you make your luck, I guess. And um, I stayed there for about 10 years. And then about four years ago, I got the call from NJSCA and, and here I am. And it was funny because I, I never, I never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up and, Every year I'd kind of laugh and, and I'd say, uh, you know, when I turned 50, I'd be like, well, maybe soon I'll find out. And then two years ago, I said, you know what? I, I think I finally know what I want to be and, and I'm doing it. So that was really cool feeling. Uh, that, is, that is fantastic. I have so many questions just based on <laughs> what, what you said. Um, with, with the economic analysis of wetlands, do you feel that there's a better grasp of – of the benefits of wetlands uh, economically. Like I didn't even realize Tom was sharing with me after talking to Marty McHugh, mm-hmm. like just the process of putting a dollar amount on wildlife for like oil spills. Yeah. Like, and I, that didn't even like reach my mind that, how, yeah. How do you quantify mm-hmm. that? Like, how do you put a price on that? Like in something that has values, all the values that wetlands do. Do we have a better grasp? Is like has yeah. it changed since you started? Have you seen much improvement? I mean, yeah, it's changed in that the natural resource damage assessment work has really grown exponentially. Um, but I still think it's horribly undervalued because it, it it it's still being destroyed. So it, it is undervalued. Um, but, you know, thank goodness for the NRDA work and, um, you know, people are still pushing it, but uh, and we, still have, we still have ways to go. Do you feel the industry as a whole has become more accepting of, of diversity? Um, do you, like I, I, I can't imagine someone telling you that you can't apply for a job because you're a woman. That just blows my mind. But I also realize how real that is. And that that's a thing. Do you do you find that it's gotten better over time? Like not it's not perfect, but is there improvement? There's there's definitely improvement. You know, I was laughing when when you had the woman in ecology and and they were talking about having to wear men's clothes because yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know the, the wearing wearing men's boots and men's shirts. You know that that gets old. Um, but it, it, it has definitely gotten better. Um, when I when I was in my master's program, my first year I was the only female. Um, and but by the time I left, there there were there was at least one more. There there might have been two of my memories a little shot. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely gotten better. And now you see women in leadership positions um, that you wouldn't have seen. 15 years ago, you know, I, I often think that when there, a woman is strong, she's looked at as angry. And when a man is strong, he's looked at as a leader. I think that's slowly changing, but I, you know, I was always very competitive and very open with my opinions, 
And sometimes that worked for me, but, but sometimes um, it had a very negative connotation. Whereas if I was a man, that would have always been looked at as, as a, a positive, I believe. Yeah. What advice can you give to some of our listeners that may be young women looking to, to get into this industry? Do you have any advice that you've learned along the way that, that could help them along their way? Well, one thing, you know, when I talk to any, any student who's looking to get in this field, I, I tell them, make sure you have some tools. Anyone can graduate with a degree, but, but what are you going to bring to the table? Uh, you know, do, do you know GIS? Can you delineate wetlands? What, what are the tools that you're bringing? Not just what did you study, but what, what are you going to bring? Um, and, and really think about that. But also, I, I, you know, there's this whole debate, should you follow your passion or not follow your passion? I, I don't really draw a line between um, my work and my life. My work and my life are me. It's all one. So I, I chose a path that allowed me to have the flexibility to spend as much time raising my sons and going to their events um, as, as I could. So that was what was important to me. But my my passion for the outside and the out of doors, you know, with an economics degree, I probably could have earned a lot more money elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but that wouldn't have left me sated at the end of the day. Um, so I, I really think you, you got to do what you love. And, and did I always do what I love? I had some really tough days back in the day and, you know, did, did a lot of all. If you keep your eye on, on the long run, then it, it comes together. But I think follow your heart and um, keep learning. Never stop. Yeah. One of the things I'll, I'll ask is what do you feel brings you outside today? Is it, we we've talked before and said like people have interests in all different things. They might be interested in birds or butterflies or the plants themselves, but it kind of brings them into nature through their, what their interest is. What's your interest that, that takes you outside? That's an interesting question. I had never thought about that really. I always <laughs> wanted to be outside. You know, I'm, I'm, I work with people with very specialized skills, like a birder a, a plant ecologist. Um, I'm more of a jack of all trades and, and master of nothing. Um, <laughs> oh, I relate to that. But <laughs> um, I would, I, there's just something about the open sky. You know, I, I tend to gravitate towards marshes and beaches rather than forested canopies. Cause I, I love that open sky when I live down in the keys. Um, I, I didn't want to move back north because it's, I just loved sitting out and watching, you know, the, 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 the weather change. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what brings me outdoors is just that, that, that great open sky. I love that you didn't necessarily know exactly what you want it to be until later in life. That's very relatable to me because I kind of stumbled my way through until I found something that not only I enjoyed but I was good at. And it, it took me so long in life. And when you draw – like you said, like if, if there's not much of a line between you and work and, and who you are, 
when you have those bad jobs or or you have bad experiences, you take it home with you. You you can't leave it at work. And I've always admired people that knew from an early age what they wanted to do and followed their dream. And it was hard not really having a dream and just trying to find my way. <laughs> so it, it's it's nice to hear, you know that. Maybe you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do, but you found the right job for you or the right profession for you and, and kind of married and, and it's a perfect fit. Like we love seeing people that are great at their job and happy at doing what they're doing and we're always curious how they found that way. And one one last thing before we get to it because I'm going to take this way off topic. <laughs> I don't know if you've been back to your alma mater. I used to live right down the road from the University of Delaware on Christina Boulevard. I lived there for about five years and I can't believe when I – I would go down for my son's lacrosse tournaments. How much that area has changed just since I've lived there in the in the mid to late nineties. That the Mopar plant's gone, and that's all university now. It's just amazing. Like it's, I don't even recognize it. Almost the Deer Park is not the same. That's disappointing. <laughs> no, the Deer Park. My father went there, and, and he 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 took me to the campus for the first time and to the Deer Park. And we sat there when the it rattles when the trains go by, and, <laughs> and I I went and visited when I was a, a senior in high school, and you know sitting in the deer park and the floorboards smell like beer, and the dog is walking through while someone's in the corner with a guitar, and yeah, it's that's not that's not it anymore. <laughs> and maybe like an eighth of an inch of beer on the floor. <laughs> like, I've I've been fortunate enough to been there, like. When they just close the doors and let you stay, <laughs> you, you know, and you'd wander out in the light. Like it's, it's just not, it doesn't have that same, same. Uh, <laughs> no. And, and even when I left and went back three years later, the change and was so different. And, and suddenly I, I was old. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel when I go back. <laughs> That's how it was. It was fun being young and living in a college town. At, at the time, and I appreciate that uh, experience. And it's it's like you, you kind of feel like you can never go back. Like you go there and you see it, but it's never quite the same. You can never have that same experience again. So it's uh, – yeah. So, Tom, do you have any questions before we do our no, famous I'm, and final I'm, last question? I'm ready for our final question. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep you on your, your, <laughs> yeah. your, your time. Um so we always ask the same last question. It never changes. It's very simple, but but yet it sometimes it's the hardest question we ask, and that is, what is your favorite native plant? Well, it is hard, and and it does. It always changes with the season. Yes. But since we're heading into fall, and I, I just spent the weekend at my sister's house down in Avalon, um, and also because I see it here every day work, I'm going with Spartina alterniflora. Oh. And I I know. That there's a new scientific name, but me, <laughs> it's an floor, and it always will be. Um, the the colors of the marsh this time of year are just beautiful. And, and last week we were out there um, in Sawmill Creek, kayaking, uh, canoeing around, and it was just like the weather was a little cooler. The sun was just the the, the light was perfect, and we just kept marveling how beautiful it was. And then. On Sunday, I took a long bike ride from Avalon down to Strathmere and back and just, you know, looking at the colors of the marsh the whole way. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with Spartina Alternaflora. That's a great choice. You know, it's one of the few naturally 
natural occurring plants that you get to see in such almost a monoculture. Um, you, you don't get to experience that too often, but where it's okay, it's one of the few things that can survive those conditions and it, it does its job very well. And it's just breathtaking when you get to see it in such large expanse Mm -hmm. that that's, that's a fantastic choice. Um, so we always kind of end up with a final thought and we always let you go first. So, and Tom and I will also kick in. So this is where we hand the floor over to you. You can use it to summarize, to mention something that that we haven't or promote something, but we hand it over to you, and the floor is yours. Okay. Well, one thing I love that, that you guys are talking about um, when you bring up books or articles. So um, I, I, I'm going to go there. Um, awesome. Started this book called The Twilight World from uh, Werner Herzog, and um, – this is, I, th- I believe, his first fictional novel, but it's based on uh, real history. And it, it's kind of a little out of the realm of native plants, but it's a, a Japanese soldier who's fighting World War II, and 30 years later in the Philippines, he's still fighting it. Uh, doesn't realize the, the war is over, but he's in the jungle, and the descriptions uh, just get real deep of, about the, the jungle and how time passes and water dripping off leaves. So it, it's got some native plants in there, <laughs> um, right. but it's a pretty cool novel. Um, and another one, uh, Outside Magazine back in the 1980s had some amazing authors like John Krakauer, Sebastian Younger, um, but also David Quammen. And um, he's written a couple cool books like The Song of the Dodo, but he had this column in Outside Magazine called Natural Acts, and it was the there was a book I believe published under that name earlier, but they just came out with a newer version of it. So I highly recommend him as an author and, and his book. And then um, in the middle of the night last night, I couldn't sleep, and I came across this really cool article in the New Yorker that I thought you guys would appreciate. It's called Killing Invasive Species is Now a Competitive Sport. Ooh. <laughs> and in the panhandle where swarms of lionfish gobble up native species, a tournament offers cash prizes to divers skilled at spearing one predator after another. So check it out. If you, if you need the link, I'll send it to you. I would and then love last, that. All right. And then last, I just want to say, um, you know, I spend a lot of time walking my dog, listening to podcasts and driving to work and listening to podcasts. And I just really appreciate the community that you have brought together through your podcasts. Um, and, and I hope you continue to, to grow that community and, and bring us together. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank I, you. It's, we, we appreciate all of our listeners, but there's folks like yourself and Bill Young and Russ Finari who, we think are like experts in the industry when they say, Oh, you guys are doing a good job. It, to us, it means we're providing good and valuable information to everyone that yeah. we're, we're on the right path. So, but I, yeah. and, and, and I appreciate, especially the last thing that you said, one of the things I'm most proud of isn't necessarily always the work that Tom and I do. It's that community yeah. that we built. We're very proud of that. And, and I'm happy to be a part of it. And it's, uh, it's thank you. That's that, that means a lot. I appreciate well, that. And, and your woman in ecology discussion, I was in tears. One, in one part, thinking about some of the past stuff that 
we all had to go through that, you know, bring that, those memories up, but also just knowing that I wasn't on that journey alone, Mm -hmm. that they were going through a lot of similar things. So tears of, of gratitude. I I would love to do, I know we talked about do a part two of that, you know, and it's, it, to me, it was a delicate balance because we wanted to highlight the struggle, but not make it all negative because there's been so much positive work and, and it was a delicate balance of not making it all negative and, and not being part of that journey myself and trying to to help narrate that was very, very difficult. But we would love to, if you're interested, if we do a part two, we would love to have you. I'm in. All right. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Tom, would you like to go next or would you like me to go? Um, yeah, I can go. And uh, I'll add a book that I'll, maybe I All should right. do a, a book review. <laughs> All right. But I'm not really going to. Um, is I read probably like two or three books a night now because I'm reading my son who's two. And, uh, but there's some really cool uh, like nature books that have come out. And um, the one that I would I would recommend is called Tree, and it's basically it's like a picture cut and whole book, and then you flip the pages, and there's just more thing. Like it starts with an owl in the winter, and then you flip the next page, and now all of a sudden there's some leaves, and then there's like foxes running around, and then you flip, and now there's other there's bear cubs climbing the tree, and but um, it kind of tells that whole the yearly story of how things show up as spring, and then summer, and then you get different flowers when it turns in the fall, and and how things kind of close up shop, and it just starts all over again the next year. Uh, cool book. But the bigger picture here is the question I asked Terry of what brings you to nature? And something I I started to think about myself, because um, I've, I've mentioned it here, I like to hunt and fish, and that's what really gets me outdoors the most. But I find I'm looking at the plants, I'm looking at the animals, the insects, and how everything's interacting. Just, I'm just happen to be outside and uh, so I challenge everyone to think about that. What's actually bringing you outside? And then how can, what's that thing that's going to bring other people outside? Your friends, your family, um, the kids down the street. Maybe it's a book that starts their, piques their interest. But as we go into the that question of like what everyone's career path and journey was, just about every single one of our guests has that foundational moment when they were a kid that, brought them outside and um well we haven't had a guest yes guest a guest yet that was like oh yeah i'd like to sit inside and watch tv <laughs> when i was a kid they all they all had that story yeah. that got them outside the first time whether it was birds or insects or just nature as a whole or camping or hiking um so just i want our listeners to think about that too what brought them outside and how they can use that as an impact to bring other people outside you know for me i think i don't know that i've ever shared this I, and i don't know if i've ever really really pondered it until you asked Terry. I, I think it's the peacefulness and the exploration of it. You know, and I have fond memories of going fishing with my dad and being at the Penn Manor Club and being just let go. We didn't have a lot of woods. You know, as a kid we would go to green belts and we would explore, but it was just the exploration of it and kind of like the peacefulness and feeling like you belong there. Uh like feeling like, yeah, this is you know, I'm a part of this. So and I appreciate that, and it's it's almost like a drug. I can never get enough of it. Like I find myself missing it if I'm away from it too long, yeah. and that's that's a good part. Yeah, uh, I'm a little si- aside too. Is we should clean up our litter, make sure we aren't. I, yeah. We were up in the Adirondacks over Labor Day weekend and took a little hike. I just looked up on the map. We we're literally 
two miles from the nearest house. And now there's people who would walk the trail, but it wasn't like it was a heavily used trail. We were probably the only people on it that day, maybe even the people, only people on it all week. Um, and I'm still finding plastic bottles and like there's That's a big, amazing. big uh, water jug at the end and fishing line and all this stuff. And it's, there's the, what's the phrase? It's like, take only pictures and leave only footprints. footprints like, yeah. Make sure you're... Yeah. you're we, we need to keep that in mind when we're going outside because litter's everywhere. So right. is our invasive species. I saw a bunch of Japanese now. Uh, too. So. All right. Let me get my final – you're down to 10 minutes. I know. Um, so um, my final thought is – and I thought, started thinking about this yesterday when you were a guest on the Native Habitat podcast just about the habitats in New Jersey and how fortunate I am. You know, Even though I wasn't born in New Jersey, I've never lived far away. I mean I, I lived in – Levittown, Pennsylvania, grew up there, which was so close to the Delaware River and, and uh, Newark, Delaware. Um, just how fortunate we are with all the different habitats. When you think of the meadowlands and the sourlands and uh, the pine barrens and having uh, uh, the the marshes and the, the ocean front and all the and the grasslands, there's just so many great things. And you know, being fortunate to live in an area where coastal plain and Piedmont meet and the weather experience. Uh, you know, just witnessing that it's just, and it's never, and even you know, you have Mount Tammany in northwest, <laughs> northwest New Jersey. It there's just so many great areas, the the Delaware River, and I just feel fortunate that no matter you know where we live, you're you're not more than an hour, hour and a half away from something really cool in the state, like a different, and <laughs> different completely habitat. different. Yeah, we have such a, a crazy amount of or diversity of uh, of habitats, which is really cool and. And I would say I forgot about the Meadowlands on that podcast. I'm <laughs> so that was just a little teaser that you had to listen to our podcast to, to know I care about the Meadowlands too. Um, but I would say even though when you're in the Meadowlands, you're looking at in many places, you're looking at the New York City skyline, uh, all the New Jersey skyline as well, the North Jersey skyline. I've been in places where you're all of a sudden you're in the middle of a marsh and you take turn to your right and all of a sudden there's giant stadium. You're like almost in the shadow of it, but really you're not going to find even though you're surrounded by all this other stuff you're not going to find places that are much more wild than that in new jersey as well um you can be in the deepest darkest parts of the pine barrens and there's still there i put them on the same level playing field of feeling uh, of as wild of a place so yeah. visit the the hackensack riverkeeper take a tour find some of these little, little trails that are in the meadowlands it's a really cool place to explore and experience i agree i agree all right, you ready? All right, yeah. That's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Terry Doss. For more information, visit. I didn't put the website put the in. Website in. So, Terry, <laughs> Terry, what's the NJSEA website address? NJSEA.com. All right, there you go. NJSEA.com. Soon, soon we'll be uh, revealing our Meadowlands Research and Restoration Institute website as well. Ooh, oh, look forward to that. When we get it. Awesome. So, thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. Uh, we're going to have a big thank you to the egocentric plastic men for our theme music to uh, the meet our guest episodes. Make sure you stream or buy their music wherever you consume music. Follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz, and we will answer it to the best of our ability. And speaking of community, don't forget about the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group and uh, keep up all the great work over there. 
Uh, you can buy shirts uh, at nativeplantshealthyplant.com. You can get all your podcast merch there. There's a, just a banner at the top that says, like, T-shirts here. Uh, take you to a Teespring store. And then all the money that we make off of that, we don't keep a dime. All the profits are given to uh, some of the, the uh, guests that we've had on that we feel deserve it, that could go a long way. Yeah. It's not – it's a, a small amount, but we try and choose guests where it's going to go a long way with them. So – um, you can also listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com, but you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast. You can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Um, when you're there, if at all possible, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, and if you do a little write-up, I'll give you a shout-out on the buzz. That goes a long way yes. into getting more people uh, hearing about Native Plants Healthy Planet and maybe – we're the reason to go outside. That would be pretty cool. That huh? would be pretty cool. <laughs> so, I would like that. With that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it um, and all the kind words. Uh, coming up next, we have a buzz episode. We'll see if Tom keeps his streak alive with his uh, this or that. You're winning so far. <laughs> I'll keep it up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so make sure you tune in next time. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.